Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. As you look at chapter 2, we are beginning the second division of the book. The key to the book of Revelation is in verse 19, so if you want to go back and look at that. John has been placed on the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. Uh, He's the only apostle and disciple who was not martyred. And the Lord preserved him because he wanted this book to be written. Now, in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel wanted to know the things that we talked about on Sunday, these world empires that would come and go. But the Lord told him, he says, no, they're going to be shut up and they're going to be sealed until, until the time of the end. Well, now we're living in the time of the end, and they're being unsealed. The book of Revelation Revelation literally means the revealing or the unveiling. Carry with it the idea of uh, going to an art show, and they're going to show you this picture, and they got it covered. And all of a sudden, the time comes where they take it off, and you have a revelation. So the key is in verse 19. He's on the island. The Lord Jesus appears to him in his glorified body. And he tells John, in verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which you have, which are, present tense, and the things which will take place after this. And in this we have the division of the three sections of the book of Revelation. As we begin chapter 2 and 3, we are beginning the second division of the book. Now, if I'm just teaching through the book of Revelation uh, on its own, I have a 60-set DVD called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. <laughs> that took me over a year to go through the book of Revelation. And so we're, we're, we're doing this in maybe three or four months. So um, obviously, I would just take the church of, of Ephesus, and that would be a week And there's enough in here to do a detailed, in-depth study, which unfortunately we're not going to be able to do. But for those of you that are studying this for the first time, you're going to get a good feel for it. And uh, as we begin chapter 2, we already last week did the Church of Ephesus. If you were not here, I would encourage you to get it uh, uh, from Jerry, and um, you can get the introduction to that. But in a quick way of, uh, as we go through the seven churches, I do want to point out similarities before I start and differences. Um, These seven letters to the seven churches have a fourfold application. Uh, The letters to the churches, as they existed, number one, were literal churches that existed in 95, 96 AD. But also, these are Letters to the church for all time, for the last 2,000 years. They're applicable for you and I. Not only as a church, but also, number three, to us as individuals for warning and encouragement. Case in point, be careful that you don't lose your first love, that you get busy serving the Lord, and all of a sudden Jesus is um, not the love of your life and and the one you live for, and the one that you love. That would be a warning. Um, and number four, and I'm going to, we'll have this up for most of the study, I want to show you pictures of Pergamos tonight. Um, but then I'm going to put up on the screen this next um, section, which it seems that these seven churches are seven distinct periods of church history from the apostles all the way to the generation that you and I are living in right now. Seven distinct time frames, and I have, uh, we'll be putting that up on the screen. Also, uh, the title that Jesus uses for himself has something to do with the spiritual condition of that church. Every letter, he will give himself a different title, but it has something to do with what he has to say to that particular church. Jesus has complete knowledge of the spiritual condition of the church. To every one of them, he says this, I know your works. 
Number three, in each church, there's either a commendation or a condemnation. He either rebukes them or he encourages them. Uh, Then there's instructions are given on how to correct it. He just doesn't rebuke them without telling them what to do. Again, a case in point, they left their first love. They didn't lose it, they left it. So he gives them instructions. Remember, repent, and return. So he tells them what to do. After he rebukes them, he then goes on to encourage them by saying things like we studied last week with uh, Ephesus. But after the correction, he says, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now I want to talk a little bit about the Nicolaitans because the early church um, stood against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which was actually establishing a hierarchy in the church. Uh, two, two Greek words, Nico and laity, establishing a leadership form um, over people. And uh, boy, there's a whole Bible study right there. I'll just sum it up by saying when the guys were jockeying for a position, they wanted a position, Jesus got down and washed their feet. He says, no, boys, you got, you got it all wrong. He says, the least among you is the greatest. And it's so contrary to the world in which we live where we're told to climb the corporate ladder, you know, take the next step, go to the next level. And that's what the world teaches, and that's the philosophy of the world. But um, in John it says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is in you. doesn't exist. Um, so also to every church, he says this. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, I believe only a born-again believer understands what I just said. Uh, number seven, he has a promise to each of the churches that are different. Every church has a different promise, but all seven of the promises pertain to you and me. Um, to him who overcomes. What does that mean? Just keeping the faith until the Lord takes us home. Not turning around. The Lord said, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back to the old ways. And, and yet we all know people that we're praying for right now. They're backslidden or they're playing prodigal or they're doing something other than being where they should be with, with the Lord. Now, uh, a pattern we see emerging, uh, the differences of the seven churches, there seems to be two distinct divisions of the letters. Letters, the first three, one, two, and three, is one division. And then the last four churches, four through seven, is another. Three churches are charged to repent or turn. That's Ephesus, Pergamos, and Thyatira. Um, Will be four types of churches in existence when the Lord comes. Sardis, and uh, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I'll develop that thought as we get into our study tonight. Um, Smyrna, the one that we're going to be studying uh, next, is the suffering church. Um, Philadelphia is the church that's small but loves God, God's word. Nothing bad is said about these two churches. So the suffering church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia have nothing negative that the Lord says about them. And with that being said, let's go to the message to the church of um, Smyrna. Uh, verse 8, why don't we read it, and I'll come back and I'll do some comments on, on them. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, in verse 1 of Ephesus, to the angel, there's a Greek word, angelos. It could mean messenger. Most commentaries, commentators believe it's a, a letter directed to the pastor to be passed on to the congregation. So you could put in there to the uh, pastor of the church in Smyrna, right? These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. He talks about his death and resurrection because this is going to be a church that is not going to be delivered from death. God's not going to deliver them from death. They're going to die. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, 
but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, let's dive into the church of Smyrna. All of these seven churches exist today in what we would call modern-day Turkey. They were actually within an 80-mile radius of each other. You could travel to any one of these churches within 80 miles. It was founded by Alexander the Great. It was a commercial center. And let's begin with the title that Jesus uses here, the one who was dead and came to life. Um, We have here this translation um, for myrrh. It's used three times in the New Testament, often connected with suffering and death. It describes here a church persecuted unto death. And guys, I know I wasn't going to, you're not ready for this, and you're going to have to do a little jogging around, but go ahead and put up the Church of Smyrna on this here, and then we'll go back and show the pictures when I get to Pergamus. But I do want to point something out at this time here. The time frame. Between 100, the first Ephesus would have been from 30 uh, on the bottom to 100 A.D. That would have represented the apostolic age. And they were already getting off track because this is written in 95, 96 A.D. Notice the time here is the next... Um, 200 years. It was during this time when we were in Rome. um, The place that impressed me the most was the catacombs. And, of course, the Colosseum. This is that period of time when the Christians were thrown to the lions. They were burned at the stake. Um, They were to be exterminated because... Uh, The emperors were gods, and they were worshiping another god rather than uh, the emperors. And so here, during this period of time, a must-read, if you're taking notes, is Fox's Book of Martyrs. It begins with Stephen, the first martyr, and it goes through this period of time of um, our brothers and sisters who were not delivered from death, the Lord says, be faithful unto death. And all kind of makes me think of the stories of the, of the shootings that took place in Columbine and some of the other high schools where the shooter came in specifically looking for Christians. And he says, which ones are the Christians? And, and, and a couple, you know, very um, um, strong believer, a gal just stood up and said, I am. And oh, he just took her right out. And for what reason? Just because she was a believer. Well, during this period of time, it was one of the greatest times of persecution uh, in church uh, in church history. Um, in verse nine, he says, "I know your works; that you're poor, you're suffering, you're tried, you're tested." Just turn the page, and I want to contrast that with the last day church of Laodicea, where he says to the church of Laodicea, uh, verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and you, you have need of nothing, you don't realize that you're really wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, their perception of themselves wasn't the perception that the Lord had of them. This church really was uh, poor. They were suffering. They were tried. They were tested. And uh, they had a chance to denounce the Lord. um, And they chose not to. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna from 69 to 156 AD. Ignatus, who was a, a pupil of John, uh, was the one who was um, the pastor at, at Ephesus. Um, 
It also makes reference here to the synagogue of of Satan. It, It suggests a pagan temple. And here we really have the beginning and marks of the uh, Roman church. The ten days could be just um, ten um, commentators are divided over this ten days. Some believe that um, it says in verse um, 10, you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Now, the word day here is not used for a 24-hour period of time. Uh, it implies more 10 different sections of time. And it's true that from 100 to 312 A.D., the church did go through 10 distinct periods of persecution under the Roman emperors, beginning with Nero and ending with Diocesan. Tough name to pronounce. And some of the other ones you'd be familiar with, Marcus Aurelius and Maximus. And, um, but there were ten periods of time where we have them under great persecution. Again, I can't put into words what it's like being in the catacombs. When, when we were there, um, there were other groups in front of us. And they had the main place to sit down and have a Bible study. And I'm getting impatient, and I think that the curator, the guy, realized that the guy was taking too long with his Bible study, so he, he motions to me. He says, come on over here. He says, I'm going to take you someplace special. These guys are taking way too long. So he says, but you've got to stick close to me because where we're going is into the catacombs. So we actually had the privilege of going to where most tourists didn't get to go. And um, it is quite an experience um, going into the catacombs. And we actually found this area that was on the walls on both sides where all these chambers cut out for burial places. But we were able to have our Bible study right in a place where he says, now make sure you stick close because you get lost in here really easy. And um, that, that was my memory of, of Rome and during this time. So here the promise is, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So here's the promise. What is the second death? Let's turn to uh, Revelation 20, I think it is. That's a promise. And um, let's pick it up in verse verse um, 5. This is after... The 1,000-year millennial reign. So Jesus has reigned, and we've reigned with him now, in the kingdom age for 1,000 years. It says, but the rest, verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the 1,000 years was finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such, and here it is, the second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Go down to verse 14, and I'm just going to quickly explain. Everybody who was not saved, was not born again, did not have their names written in the book of life, they were resurrected from hell, and now they stand and they're judged according to their deeds, and... In verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So let's go back to the promise that he gives to the church of Smyrna. They're about to die. He says, don't give up. Don't deny the faith. Hang in there. Just keep going. And he says, if you do, you don't have nothing to worry about. Uh, You will not be hurt by the second death because you'll be a part of the first uh, resurrection. That's the church of Smyrna, and a crown of life will be given to them. But I want to point out here that God did not deliver them. Our job is to be faithful unto death. We happen to live um, in America, where, at the moment anyway, (laughs) we're not under persecution uh, for uh, for preaching the gospel. Um, 
not, it's not so in Cairo. It's not so in places in Syria. You can't have a Bible in Saudi Arabia. Let's go on to the Church of Pergamos. And we'll read verses 12 through 17. And to the angel, the angelos, again in the Greek, of the church in Pergamos, right? Now a new title. These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days when which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And this you also have, who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Well, Ephesus stood against it. Here in Pergamos, they've embraced it. And um, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, that's, again, a reference to the word of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Um, the only churches worth putting up on screen would have been Ephesus and now Pergamus. So I have four shots that we found today of uh, Pergamus, so let's put them up and I'll explain them. The first one you're looking at is the amphitheater. Now, I've been to many amphitheaters um, in Israel. I've been in the one um, in Petra, and um, I've been in the one in Ephesus. They have one there. This here was so steep that you actually, when you were climbing up, it was almost hand over hand. But the view from the top of of Pergamus is absolutely gorgeous. It's very high up, and here's a picture of the amphitheater. Um, I'll show you a couple pictures of the library. Here's one. Let's go to another one. Here's another one. These are the ruins of Pergamus. Um, there's two more, or maybe one more. Is there one more, guys, or is that it? If that's it, just leave it there. That was it. Go back and just leave that up for a second. Uh, the library, let's just uh, talk about this. The background was empire um, worship. It was the center of wealth and fashion. It was the Roman capital of Asia. And catch this. The library that I just showed you held 200,000 volumes of books. And next to the one that was destroyed in Alexandria um, during Mark Anthony's time in Alexandria, that was the largest one. And, uh, but next to that, the one in Pergamos had the second largest uh, library in the world at its time. The title that Jesus uses for himself here is a sharp two-edged sword. Well, when you talk about the... Our armor, you know, you have the shield of faith, and then it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Lord is using the title of himself here, the sharp two-edged sword. But then in verse 13, it says, where Satan's throne is. Now, I wish I could take a whole study on this. What we have here is what happened um, on Sunday, we're going to, Find when we get to chapter 5, Babylon is actually going to fall in one night. And after the Babylonians fell, remember the king and the hand came out, and one night all of Babylon was destroyed. In one evening it was taken over. By who? By the Medes and the Persians. Well, what happened was, the significance of this is found in, the, in Babylonian mysticism. The Chaldean priests 
fleeing before the conquering Persians. So imagine the night um, that Babylon fell and the people are on the run. They scatter. Well, where did the priests go to? They took refuge and settled in Pergamos. So the, um, the priests that were in Babylon in fleeing became now the place where they settled in. Their worship consisted in the deification of the emperor. Atticus III, the king of Pergamos, about 133 B.C., was priest of the Aztec um, Aztec cult and willed his title to the Romans. The title of the Babylonian high priest was Pontifus Maximus, or chief bridge builder, meaning the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan and his host. Julius Caesar first assumed this royal priesthood under the Latin title Pontifus Maximus, and thus divine honors were conferred upon Roman emperors, later assumed by the popes. So when we read here where Satan's seat is, it was in Babylon, but now it's been transformed and moved to Pergamos. But Mary did an update one time, and they actually have... Um, this building, and it's in Europe today, and you can still uh, uh, visit it. Uh, it's been transformed there. Um, Babylon to Pergamos to Rome. That's the progression that we're going to find where Satan's seat is. Started in Babylon, went to Pergamos. Pergamos was is going to come to an end, but eventually it goes to Rome. They're into false doctrine. The doctrine of Balaam. Well, um, just turn back a page to Jude and uh, look at verse 11. And it says, this, this whole, this is just one chapter on false teachers and false doctrine. It says, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. He's referring to false teachers right now. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So they have the doctrine of Balaam. The error of Balaam for prophet put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Let me just give you this story quickly. Their children of Israel, after 40 years, are getting ready to go into the promised land. Everywhere they go, they wipe out all their enemies. Balaam was a, a, a prophet of the Lord, and, um, oh, Lord, help me remember the king of Moab's name was. That's not it. Um, Balak? Don't remember. Anyway, um, he ran, he was, basically, he goes to Balaam, who's a prophet, and he says, you got to curse these people, or they're going to wipe us out. And so he tries to. He goes up on a mountain. He begins to curse, but all he gets to go, he says things like, oh, how beautiful are the tents of Israel, how God loves them, and his blessing is continually upon him. And the king of Moab didn't like that, so he says, let's go to a different mountain. So they go to a different mountain, curse him. He says, okay, I'll curse him, but it's all for money. When they came to hire him, he says, well, even if you gave me a whole house full of silver, hint, 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 I, I couldn't only say what the Lord would put in my mouth. The idea here is he's being bought off. So the doctrine of, of Balaam is he says, I can't curse them. But I tell you what, God will curse them. And what was the counsel of, of Balaam to Balak? I think it was Balak, the king of, of Moab. He says, you get your young gals, get the prettiest ones, and you bring them down into the camp of Israel, and you show them how you worship your God which was basically fornication. And that's exactly what the king did, and that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel, and many of them, God brought judgment upon them. And so when we read here the doctrine of uh, Balaam, it, is, um, it has something to do with being able to be bought off in some way, shape, or form, and that's what we read here um, 
in, uh, in the book of Jude. All right, let's go back to, um, back to Pergamos. The next thing we read, you also hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And again, remember, Ephesus hated it, but Pergamos embraced it. The church here now joins the world, and here it is where Satan changes his strategy. Before it was kill the Christians. But what happened was Constantine became emperor of Rome. This is about 312 A.D. And this, let's put our chart back up on, on the screen now, guys, so that we can see this next section of time. From 312 to 606 A.D., we have the worldly church, Pergamum. And what happened was, whether it was, I actually watched a movie the other night on Constantine and their, their take on it. Whether he truly was converted because of a sign that he saw across that says, go and conquer in the sign. Whether it was a political move, people aren't sure. Whether or not it was a genuine conversion, we don't know for sure. But we do know for sure is that he made edicts that were against the church. He repealed them all. Instead of being thrown to the lions, he now converts and declares Christianity to be the state religion. Pagan temples became churches. Statues of heathen gods were named for saints and apostles. Baptism was forced on unwilling subject at the edge of the sword. So if you're not baptized yet, um, there's a sign-up sheet out there. And if you're walking by it and you're not saved, we have a guy there with a sword ready to take you out. So you need to be baptized, all right? Just kidding. But this is true. Whole legions of his soldier, of soldiers marched into baptismal waters Priestly robes and vestments were consecrated to Christian worship. The church and the state united. They married. Compromise was made with heathen rites and images. Satan's throne was established in the professing church. For example, um, before 312 AD, there was no Christmas, nor there was Easter. These were pagan holidays. And um, we have the beginning here of what is what we would call the priesthood of Rome. And the Lord tells them, a lot of times people don't think Jesus talks like this. He says, repent or else, or else. Those are pretty strong words. To the church of of, uh, Ephesus, he says, if you don't don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Would you just meditate on that just for a minute and think about what's being said? Do this, or I'm going to remove you. That flies in the face of a lot of theology today when it comes into areas of predestination, eternal security, and I could talk a long time about that, but it would open a whole can of worms, believe me. So I'm just going to leave it of of what it says right here and make reference to it again in one of the other churches. All right. Um, but he who overcomes will be given a white stone, a new name which no one knows except he who receives it. Interesting. And as I think about this, I, you know, um, guys, if you're sitting next to your wife tonight, um, I don't know what you call her behind closed doors, but it's always not by her first name. Usually, be honest with me now. How many of you husbands have a name other than the name of your wife that you call her behind closed doors. Be honest. Raise your hand. Come on. All right, that's better. <laughs> we all do. Whether it's honey or sweetie or hey dear this or what, whatever it is. To me, this, this is affection. And um, again, the issue is love. Jesus says, forget the ministry, forget the works, return to your first love. Gang, you're the bride. He's the groom. And he wants us to think about him on that level. Not a religious level, not a works level, but on a romantic level. Only you know what you call your wife behind closed doors. And the Lord's going to give you a stone. And he's going to say, you're special to me. And here's my pet name for you. That's what I think is being said here. Nobody else is going to know. To me, 
it implies um, intimacy, and um, it expresses something that's very, very personal. And personally, I like it. I kind of wonder what he's going to call me. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the third church of Thyatira. In church history now, we're moving to... Uh, we're begi- we're, we just finished the first three. So now as we begin with um, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, there's a phrase in here that seems to imply that there's going to be four kind of churches that will exist in the last days. So as I read these last four churches, they exist in what we would call collectively the church today. So the church of Thyatira... To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire, his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a, prophet, a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one according to your works. Here's individual judgments. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, many that do not hold to this doctrine. So the spiritual fornication here is a doctrine. It's part of this particular church and what they're committing and it's tied directly into Jezebel. And I'll develop this a little bit more as we go on. Um, and who have not known the depths of Satan, and they, and they and call them, and I will put no other burden on you, but hold fast. In other words, hang in there. What you have until I come, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also received from my Father. And I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So now we have the church of Thyatira. What we have here from 590 to 517 AD is the rise of the Roman church. And we have the title of the Lord here is the Son of God whose eyes are flames of fire. To me, that means he sees through everything and everything is open and naked before him. When it says, nevertheless, that woman Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. Now, Jezebel was known to introduce Baal worship in Israel. And when we go to Israel on our very first day, we go to Mount Carmel. I call it a bee spot because it's the it's place. There's a, a statue um, there of Elijah. And this is where the 400 prophets of Baal, um, you know, they made it a contest. Um, and Elijah says, tell you what, let's gather everybody together on Mount Carmel. And the God that answers from heaven with fire let him be God. Prophets of Baal said, sounds like a good idea, let's do it. So the contest went on, and all day long the prophets of Baal wailed and cried and and um, got real Pentecostal, started cutting themselves and jumping all over, and nothing, nothing was happening. And Elijah gets sarcastic, and he says, well, why don't you guys shout a little bit louder, maybe he's sleeping. Or, or maybe he's busy, which is where it actually means using the bathroom. He's being sarcastic. He says, um, and he basically began to mock them, and nothing happened. And then Elijah said, okay, you guys have been going at this all day long, my turn. Very, very simple prayer. Lord, will you please show them who's God 
And immediately, the altar that was there was um, uh, on the altar. Uh, they built a trench around it. They doused it with water on, on these temples. And immediately, the fire came from heaven, consumed the altar, consumed the sacrifice, and consumed the stones that were there. And that day was a turning point in Israel. That day, Jezebel said, today is the day that Elijah dies. And he actually ran for his life after that. And I wish I could develop that more. But what we have here is he's saying you have that woman Jezebel. What did Jezebel do? She brought false doctrine and false teaching into the land of Israel who was to worship the Lord God Jehovah only. Good place for an amen. But it had infected the church. And here, um, the Lord is calling it spiritual fornication or idolatry. And he says, unless you guys repent of this, um, I'm going to put you into the great tribulation. I would say at this point, as we um, look at this, that it is a picture of the beginning of Roman Catholicism. Um, I'm talking to a brother this week about um, baptism. He's dealing with family members that they're just talking about infant baptism. And so when we were talking, I, I said, when you talk to your friends, just let them know that there was no such thing as infant baptism until 412 AD. So what happened to all those people that weren't baptized according to the doctrine, unless you're baptized into the Roman Catholic Church, um, your salvation is at issue. And so what this is just one of the um, doctrines along that came into the church that added to um, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember in, in the New Testament, he says you can see the grace or its works. If it's grace, then it's grace. If it's works, then it's works. But you can't put the two together. It's one or the other. Here was the system that was coming in that was now adding to, to it, and the verbiage that the Lord uses here is strong. Sexual immorality. Repent, and if you don't, then you're, this church in the last day is going to actually enter into the great tribulation period. Now, when we just turn up quickly over to Romans chapter, Romans, Revelation chapter 17. And... Um, There's going to be a one-world religion, and that's what chapter 17 is about. It's called Mystery Babylon. And uh, John is totally blown away here when he gets the interpretation of this woman who was drunk with the blood of the saints, verse 6, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled. Here was a church that was killing Christians. And it, it blew them away. And then there's more description But if you look at the very last verse, where is this located? Verse 18 says, The woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This was written in 96 AD in John's time. And who ruled over the world in John's time? Rome. And um, they destroyed um, Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this is just 20 years after... After that, so the, the headquarters, when I talk about Thyatira, um, I clearly have in view here Roman Catholicism has turned believers from Jesus to Mary. They substitute the finished work of Christ with the sacraments and the Mass. The Mass is literally a sacrifice every single week, and only a priest can take the wafer and turn it into the body of Jesus Christ and the literal blood. Ask any Roman Catholic, is it really the body of Christ? Is it really the blood? Yeah, a priest is called transubstantiation. No, it's spiritual fornification. Because it's offering, Hebrews makes it crystal clear. Chapter 10. One sacrifice for all time. Another good place for it, amen. All right. They... they um, Shut up the word of God from the people. You were forbidden to read the Bible. Uh, penance, purgatory, salvations by works, celibacy. There are so many lawsuits in the Roman Catholic Church today 
because of people that are normal human beings, just like you and me, um, are forced to take this vow of celibacy. They don't have the gift that Paul had. And so what they do is they get themselves into a lot of trouble, and there's a lot of lawsuits. And the thing of it is, there's nothing biblical about it at all. But verse 21 and 22, there does seem to be a link between sickness and sin and a lack of repentance and strong words of warning. Verse 24, there were those that were, that were there who were unaware who just loved the Lord. And um, just as, you know, Elijah said, Lord, I'm the only one who's left. And he says, you don't know what you're talking about, Elijah. I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knee to me. You're not the only one. Now, hear me clear, because sometimes when I talk about Roman Catholicism, there are people in the Roman Catholic Church who just don't know their Bible, but have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why it says here, um, um, but to you in verse 24, and to the rest that do not hold to this doctrine. I know Roman Catholics, and in talking to them, and when I talk about some of these things like purgatory, they say, well, I don't, I don't believe in that. And I get into some of the other things about praying Mary. Well, I don't believe in that either. And yet, because they don't know the scriptures, because they've been forbidden to read the Bible, um, the Lord makes a distinction that there are those that are there that he, he will um, put no other burden on and who have not known the depths of Satan. And so let me make that distinction. We, we have here, in verse 25, the first reference that this church will be in existence when Jesus returns in verse 25, where it says, Hold fast till I come. Let's move on to the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis, let's read it. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, boy, there's are important words today. If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. I can't help but think of the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. Five had their lamps trimmed, and they were watching. And the other five didn't have any oil. I don't believe they were born again. I believe the, the, the oil there is a symbol of the Spirit of God. Verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Here, as we go on, and you look here, the time frame for Sardis is a dead church. I believe it's a Protestant church versus Roman Catholicism. The time frame would be 1520 uh, through the tribulation. And uh, as we look at Sardis here, we have the, the um, really the beginning of Luther and the Reformation in 1517 A.D. Uh, nothing good is said about this church. Nothing. Nothing good. Uh, the light was received, but it wasn't walked in. In other words, they went to church, they played church, but it was a dead church because there was no life in it. Uh, people can grow up, it's a custom, it's a, a tradition. This is what you do. You go to church on Sunday morning, not so much in this, in this generation, but in the generation that I did, it doesn't matter. Everybody went to church on Sunday morning and all the stores were closed. You guys remember that? Well, that's the way it used to be. Um, verse 3 may imply that there was a possibility of not being ready when Jesus returned. Jesus tells them to watch. That's why we have prophecy conferences. That's why we have news bites that are 
hand it out. We just sent a news bite out to uh, one of the my friends. I'm on his board in, in Buckeye, Arizona. He heard about Mary's news bites that we do here. And he just got his first one. So he shot me back an email today. He says, this is great. Keep them coming. Because we want you to be on the cutting edge of what's happening. We want you to know what's happening in the Middle East is so significant right now that these are major signs that are taking place for the second coming of the Lord. Um, like the church before it in Thyatira, verse 4 says, there are a few there walking worthy of their calling. In other words, they were born again, but they were just stuck in a church that um, was, was dead. Uh, I liken it to the state churches in Europe that would, if they weren't, Financed, but they're, they're called state churches because the state provides the money for the doors to remain open. But they wouldn't be open if it was dependent upon the congregation to tithe to keep the church doors open. They would cease to exist. They're dead churches. Um, Europe um, is post-Christian. Um, uh, Islam is what's, what's happening o- over there. Verse 5 it says, and I won't botch, uh, let's look at this. This is an important one for you to think about. Um, he who overcomes will be clothed in white, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. What does that mean? Does that mean your name can be blotted out? I have a simple question at this point. If this isn't the issue, why even mention it? If it's, why would the Lord even say such a thing? And I will not blot your name out. What is it implying? That it could be. Again, this is going to throw a a wrench into a lot of people's theology when it comes to predestination and election and eternal security. It talks about abiding, continuing, if you continue. And um, there's a whole Bible study there, but I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself. That's what the Lord said. I promise, here's one of the blessings, I won't blot your name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, what did the Lord say? You're either going to gather or you're going to scatter. He says to you, and just put your, I'll put my name in here, but you put your name in when I say it. Um, father, this is Dwight. He confessed me before men, and now I'm confessing him before you. So what I just said, put your name in there. But, There are those who deny him. And he says, those who deny me, I will also deny them. There are people that go to church. They're not born again. They don't know the Lord. They're going to say, but Lord, Lord, we did this. We did this. We did did missionary outreaches. We supported world vision and so on and so forth. And he'll say, depart from me. I don't know you. Who are you? No personal relationship with them. And so we have dead Protestantism. He who has an ear, let him... him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have to move along to the church of Philadelphia. Let's read it, and then I'll come back and and comment on Philly. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews that are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. I like that. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, a reference to the great tribulation which is to come upon part of the world? No. This, what, this, tri- this tribulation is not um, the battle of Armageddon. This is, this is a tribulation period because it affects the entire world. To test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven 
from my God, and I will write on him my new name. The Lord's going to have a new name? That's what it says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, Philadelphia. Um, The title that the Lord picks here is he says, I have the key of David. In other words, I can open doors and I can close doors. And um, um, I believe this is a reference to opportunities in ministry. Open doors uh, for the word. I believe that the, this church in church history would be, as we have it up on a chart here, um, 750 to the rapture of the church. Nothing bad is said about Philadelphia. And everybody here knows that Philadelphia is known for as what? The city of what? Brotherly love. Um, It did not receive its name from scripture. It got its name because of the love and loyalty of Annalus II had for his brother, um, Eminus, who was the king of Pergamus. The two churches that Jesus had no criticism for was Smyrna, the suffering church, and Philadelphia um, are places that are still in existence today. All right, in other words, this church, you know, we want to be Philly. What more can I say? Good place for an amen, guys. (laughs) You want to be Philadelphia. Um, They have little strength. This is not a mega church. This is, I believe, a smaller church. Um, But they kept his word in days of denial of the inspiration of the inerrancy of the word of God, both then and now. They did not deny his name. They will be kept somehow from this great trial that's going to come upon the whole world. Well, it's obvious that we have the rapture in view here. The church of Thyatira is going to go through the Great Tribulation, and its headquarters is going to be in Rome. The church of Philadelphia isn't going to be even going to be around. The Lord is going to keep them. How? The rapture of the church. Here, um, the trials, um, the trials determine the outcome of, of one's faith. Trials reveal a person's true inner character. You find out what a person is made of when they go through difficult times. And um, they, they say things like, I have no clue what's going on right now. And yet, Romans 8, 28, still in the Bible, somehow God is working the situation to the good. I've been praying for the last week, Lord, please clear my head up. Please, Lord, please, please, please. And it hasn't. So you just keep pressing on. Um, those on earth will be tried to, uh, to reveal whether they'll accept Christ or the Antichrist. You see, right now, um, you're not forced to do that. People can live the way they want to. We're free. But it's not going to be that way during the Great Tribulation. I like to liken it to no more, no more indifference. Uh, no more just maybe someday I will or someday I won't. No, you're going to have to choose. You're either going to choose to take the mark of the beast or you're going to die. No in between. But they're going to be kept from all that. And um, they have this promise given to them. Um, Philadelphia is not specifically uh, a Protestant nor a Catholic church. It simply represents all of the churches the world over that remain true to the word of God and have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, The test following Christ or the Antichrist, the line will be drawn. Again, that'll be the choice. Verse 11, take nothing for granted. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Another way of that would be saying walking in the fear of the Lord. And um, David talked about a lot of that. You know, it bothers me sometimes when uh, people say, yeah, I'm in touch with the big man up in the sky, or me and JC, we're tight, and stuff like that. 
You know, that reverence just isn't there that I think should be there as um, he is our Lord and Savior. Yes, he's our groom. But the flippancy sometimes bothers me. And that wasn't a factor here with this church. Um, The identification with God, uh, last time you, you have a new name, this time Jesus has a new name. Let's move on to the last one. We'll get in Laodicea. Here is the lukewarm last day church. It's a timeline about 1900 through the through the tribulation. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says, I know your works. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. The word there is actually vomit, literally vomit you. It's nauseating to the Lord. He said, I'd I'd rather have you one way or the other. Because you say I have rich, I become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. uh, You do not know that actually you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The counsel. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, we often use this next verse for evangelism, but he's speaking to the church Jesus is on the outside trying to get in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The title Jesus uses here is a faithful and a true witness versus an unfaithful and an untrue witness in this church. The name Laodicea means customs of the people. In other words, they were politically correct. They had their finger in the air like this. And have you ever heard the terminology where people say, well, which way is the spirit moving now so that we can line ourselves up with it? What's the current trend? And, uh, they were moved by society and being influenced by the world rather than the world influencing. I mean, and, 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 and I'll get it out, Dwight. <laughs> What's supposed to be the church influencing the world, the world here is influencing the church. God forbid. Another good place for an amen. But that's what they were. They were politically, they wanted to be politically Correct, they wanted to be relevant is the big word that's out there today. Um, So the name actually means customs of the people or political correctness. This church is influenced by society rather than the word of God. They, They were apostate, they were affluent, they were worldly, they were indifferent, they were lifeless, they were formal. They had an attitude that they were rich and self sufficient. This is similar to the health and wealth gospel for today. Uh, They refuse to see themselves as poor and needy. And this is what David describes, that that he looks upon those that see themselves as poor and needy. They're they're neither cold nor nor hot. Um, I'm quoting a preacher from, I think it's Wilkerson, New York, said, Twenty lukewarm Christians hurt the cause of Christ more than one blatant atheist. A lukewarm church is a disgrace to God. Jesus told those in Smyrna not to fear suffering, but many today are frightened of it because they do not want to pay so high a price for serving the Lord Jesus. They don't even want to be known. Uh, We call them closet Christians. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus rebukes them because he loves them. Um, open rebuke in Hebrews is better than a secret love. 
And when somebody gets off track, if you really love them, you tell them. Listen, bro, you're off track. Your heart's not in the right place. And by doing so, you're openly rebuking them. That's better than a secret love. He tells them to be zealous and repent. The word zealous means to be hot. They must turn and forsake their lukewarm state. This final Christian church professes to be Christian but lacks reality. He graciously issues a final call to repentance and an invitation to come to himself. I'll conclude tonight by saying, don't forsake, the in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together and that much more, what's the rest of the sentence? As you see the day approaching. And so the danger here is in the last days, the real Christian church is not going to be the mega churches because they are conforming. The Bible says in the last days, they're going to gravitate towards teachers who will tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And what we need to hear is just this book and let it speak for itself. So there's not one person here tonight that actually believed that I was going to teach all seven letters of seven churches on a Wednesday night. I know how you think. And I'm a little bit past my time, but not much. Let's stand and we'll pray. What can we say, Lord? We want to be Philadelphia. We want to have this commendation that um, you're going to keep us from the hour of trial that's going to come upon this whole world. We look out there, we see Roman Catholicism, we see dead Protestantism, we see the prosperity teachers and those who, who teach the, the, the doctrine that if you give your life to the Lord that you'll be healthy and wealthy. And we see it here as something that makes you nauseous. And I admit, Lord, after seeing some of the Christian programming down in the Phoenix area, it was nauseating. And this is what we're up against, Lord. So we pray you'd help us. Um, I pray you'd challenge us tonight to um, get back to our first love, keep our priorities straight, and um, do it more and more, Lord, as we see the day approaching. Help us be that church that is watching for your return. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, Amen and amen.